Good morning. It's my privilege to be with you this morning on this, this second Sunday of Advent. I, I think Advent is such a great season because it's the beginning season. It's the beginning of our church year. And, uh, and there are these themes that are associated with Advent, some of, of which you heard this morning, themes that, that lead us into the celebration of Jesus' birth at Christmas. And the themes that we hear about that are usually reflected during Advent are, are things like anticipation and expectation and preparation and hope and joy and longing and, and things like that. And during Advent, we first of all look back in time. We, we look back at Jesus' birth. And then we look around at what God is doing right now in us, through us, all around us in the world. And we look forward to the day ahead when Jesus will come again. And so we live in the time between his comings. And in that space, our lives are being formed as we express our love to God and our love to the world that God loves. Now, when January comes, most of us feel like things are just starting up again, right? We've got work, we've got school, we've got all of the stuff that just fires right back up after the first of the year. And some of you probably know that the month of January is actually named for the mythological Roman god Janus, the god of beginnings. And when Janus summons us from our holidays, we just get busy. But Advent and Christmas always precede January's beginnings. And in our engagement with the story of Jesus' arrival, we open up the possibility of, of our lives re-engaging with God's reconciliation in the world before we begin anything else. And so may it be that by the time Janus demands our attention again, that we've already been immersed in the call to follow Jesus. In our gospel reading this morning, John the Baptist speaks rather unkindly to some local religious leaders. And no matter how you try to explain it, you brood of vipers is not a compliment. Uh, you, you cannot sugarcoat that phrase at all. The, the phrase literally means the offspring of poisonous snakes. If you think about it, uh, it, it wasn't just an insult to those leaders. Uh, it was an assault on their entire heritage. It's like a, insulting your mother, calling her a poisonous snake. It was a serious insult. And it's quite a contrast to their claim to be descendants of Abraham. They say, we're from Abraham. John says, no, from snakes. Sharp contrast. But Matthew doesn't offer us any kind of a real backstory to help us why John insulted these people in the way that he did. People who would come to be baptized. In the story, they just show up. They, they appear to be buying what John is selling, so to speak, but he chases them off. He acts as though he already knows what they're going to say, even before they say it. But it could be that John was not just speculating or assuming. It's likely that he had heard them speak in other contexts, 
making claims about their status as descendants of Abraham, but without demonstrating the kinds of behaviors that would give evidence that they were actually a part of the people of God, a people who would do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with their God. So Matthew describes other people who came, not the Pharisees and Sadducees, but other people who came for baptism as ones who were confessing their sins, speaking out the the realities, the dark realities even of their lives, rather than being ones who just laid claim to a favored status. And as such, they came as truth-tellers. And they were willing to confess what was real in their lives, and having done so, then seek God's forgiveness. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, according to the text, seem to have other agendas. John doesn't seem to be willing to just let them use this act of baptism as, as some sort of status symbol or, or perhaps a, a false expression of piety. John had probably heard them speak in other contexts, but he was not going to allow their words to shape the work to which God had called him. You know, that's one of the things that Jesus and John actually had in common, besides the fact that they were cousins. They were both driven by the Spirit of God and the sights and the sounds that demanded their allegiance and their conformity were powerless to shape them to form them, powerless to stop them even. Only death would stop the both of them, or so people thought. Our text from Isaiah this morning, which has long been understood to be words that anticipate the coming of Jesus, also speak to that kind of single-mindedness when we're told that his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. This one who will come shall do these things. He's one who will act in the future. You know, for all people, including us, really, sights and sounds, Actions and words can frame our judgments into something other than the kind of righteousness that Isaiah describes. I learned uh, just recently that apparently there's a new word in town. The Oxford Dictionary's 2016 International Word of the Year, and yes, that's really a thing, is the word post-truth. Post-truth as if it's one word. Here's the definition that they give to post-truth. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Now, can you guess what motivated them to select that word? It was our recent U.S. presidential election. Now, they probably could have picked any historic U.S. election for that word, but this one in particular seemed to grab their attention. A number of observers have marveled at how political claims without any factual basis were broadly embraced by voters this season. And many of those claims were found on social media sites that were later exposed as intentionally fraudulent. Fraudulent. 
there were actual websites disguised as real news websites. And uh, when you read the fine print, you find that they actually intended to put out false information just to sort of mess with everybody, uh, just to see what would happen if they put out false claims. But even in the face of, of facts that showed certain claims to be untrue, it appears that some voters still held to their views more because of what was felt and perceived than because of what could actually be verified as truth. I had an experience with this a number of years ago. Uh, I got a phone call from a man I had known in college. I went to a Christian college. I knew him, but we weren't friends particularly. I just knew him. And uh, he called me 20 years later, right out of the blue. He lived in Hawaii. I don't even know how he got my phone number. And so we, we talked for a little while, a little awkwardly, of course, until he just suddenly made the observation, rather casual observation, that I had married a certain woman from our school and then was later divorced from her. I explained to him that I had, in fact, not married that particular woman, nor had I been divorced from her. I uh, had, in fact, married my wife, Emily, and I was married to her at that moment. Still am, I'd like to add. <laughs> and um, the man very calmly explained that I was incorrect. <laughs> and um, I re-explained my situation, and he countered once again with what he had come to believe. So I asked him to hold on a minute, and I, I went downstairs, and I found Emily, and I said, we're married, right? <laughs> and she said, yeah, just behave yourself, and it'll hold steady. Um, and so I went to a bureau and dug around till I found our marriage license and confirmed dates and signatures, and then I went back upstairs, and I reported my findings to the man. He held his ground. I thanked him for calling, and I hung up the phone. I never heard from him again, thankfully. <laughs> you know, what this guy had come to feel and perceive had formed his thinking in such a way that even verifiable facts had no impact on him at all. It's kind of disturbing to consider how people can be shaped and formed by things that just aren't real or true. And of course, there's folks out there who think that's exactly what's going on with us, that we've been shaped by a mythical narrative that has no basis in reality. We know that. And yet the Bible, the Bible that offers us our life story, differentiates between beliefs that are based in reality and those that have no such basis. In the 44th chapter of the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the, the whole absurdity of idol worship is illustrated by mocking the iron worker and the carpenter who, who fashion idols with their own hands and then bow down to worship what they have just made. The, the horror of the story is not simply the misplaced worship directed toward an inanimate object. The, it's the horror that a human life can be shaped by something that is nothing and offers nothing. No life, no reality, no hope. You know, as I said earlier, one of the common themes in Advent is the theme of anticipation. Anticipation is always focused on what is yet to come. And it has the power 
to shape us from what we anticipate from the future. In our Isaiah text this morning, the the prophet anticipates the coming of the one who shall set all things right. And he's characterized by, by righteousness rather than the demands of public opinion. He seeks equity for the meek, right judgments for the poor. His presence brings peace upon the earth and is a light to all the nations. Imagine how a people who anticipates such a future might be formed by that anticipation, that they might become the kind of people who await that root of Jesse, as he's described, a people who are being shaped and formed by the very future that they await. You know, I worry sometimes about how we who follow Jesus, how I who try to follow Jesus can be shaped by what we see and hear just right now in the present. Images and sounds that form our thinking by popular molds that align folks like us with dominant powers and reduce our identity down to nothing more than conservative religious voting blocks that demand seats at the tables of political power. We live in a world that appears to be increasingly angry and violent, a world characterized by suspicion and fear. Those are the images and the sounds of the present, and they have immense power to form and shape us. But Advent reminds us that we are a people who are called to live in the reality of the past, present, and future simultaneously. We live in a story that's deeply rooted in the past, a past that's characterized by God's presence and work in a particular people. And it's a story that just explodes with the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all historical events grounded in the past. We also recognize that we are participants in the present. We, we can't just shut our eyes to the reality of all the things that are going on around us all the time. There are real issues and real problems that impact real people. So we are a people who face the present as ones who are grounded in a history, but are who, who are also continuously being formed by the future. And the future that we anticipate is not one that is crafted out of the things that make nations and economies great, but rather one of God's intentions and desires. And as we anticipate what's yet to come, righteousness, wisdom, peace, the renewal of the whole of creation, we don't have to wait passively. We can open ourselves to God's formative work that comes from His intended future instead of allowing the sights and the sounds of the present to just have their way with us. We can become a people who reflect what God will do by being his people in the brokenness of the present. Maybe this was part of what John was getting at when he called the Pharisees and the Sadducees a brood of vipers and then told them to bear fruit that was worthy of repentance. He he seemed to have no patience for those who came for a ritual cleansing, but without evidence of their lives being turned toward God, 
and then reflecting a kind of righteousness that would, would transcend the superficiality of popular religious demand. John even differentiates between the present and the future when it came to baptism. He seemed to recognize that what he was doing had a significant symbolic effect, but that it could also be a very empty ritual for some people. But then he points to a future when someone new will arrive on the scene and baptize with the Holy Spirit, the the very Spirit of God, and with the purifying power of fire rather than with the coolness and easy accessibility of water. You know, there's a little bit of wordplay going on in our text in Matthew. The Greek word for baptize is baptizo. That's where we get that word. And and while it does mean to immerse in water or to cleanse, it, it also means to overwhelm. And I think we're being told that The important anticipatory work of John was expressed in a ritual that did involve immersion in the common reality of water. But John also looked ahead to when Jesus would move beyond that present reality and overwhelm people with the power of the Holy Spirit. And the work of God's Spirit always comes to us from what God intends for the future. And that's where we find the true shaping of our lives. From the work of the Holy Spirit, who brings to us what God intends for the future, intentions that are enacted in our lives right now in the present. There are all kinds of distorted narratives and false claims that have the the power to form and shape us, but the overwhelming power of God's Spirit will transform us even from those broken stories of the present, into a people who live out the realities of the story of the ages. So in this Advent season, may we embrace the opportunity to bear fruit that's worthy of repentance. That is to say, let's open ourselves up to the overwhelming power of the Holy Spirit that we might be transformed over and over again into people of God's intended future rather than people ravaged by the sights and sounds of the present. May we be a people formed by a future hope. And right now, would you just bow your heads in silence as I'd be prepared to pray this uh, these words that were granted to us this morning by the Apostle Paul. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.